We're going to get into uh, the, God, or the epistle of James this morning. So if your Bibles turn with me to James chapter 1. Realize sometimes our eagerness to get something or to accomplish something can cause problems. I read a few years ago of a group of tourists in the country of Iceland who were forced to pause their tour for many hours to look for a tour mate, someone on the tour, who was presumed lost. It says, the article went on, that one of the women on the bus was so eager to get to the next stop and change her clothes and freshen up because of the many hours of travel that when the bus stopped, she, she leapt off as fast as she can to, to change her clothes. And when she came back to the bus, her travel mates didn't recognize her. And as they continued traveling through Iceland, they stopped near this volcanic canyon in southern highlands. And soon, though, word was beginning to pass among those on the bus that there was a missing passenger. The woman who had gotten off the bus to change didn't recognize the description of the woman that was missing. She didn't listen well, and so she joined the search team for herself. Fifty people joined the search over dangerous terrain by vehicles and on foot for many hours. The Coast Guard was coming in. Helicopters were being summoned in to find this person. And the, the search was called off at 3 a.m. when they finally became clear to everyone involved that, in fact, the person, the woman missing was, in fact, part of the search party. She was eager for something. What was it? Well, it's to change out of her, her dirty, smelly clothes. But she also didn't listen. She didn't listen to the word that was shared about the missing person. When they described the person, she didn't, she didn't hear. She didn't listen to what they said. She might have heard the announcement, but she didn't accept it. She didn't pay any attention to it. It was eagerness misplaced. And, and eagerness in the wrong direction can cause a lot of problems. And James, this morning, will describe to us the need for eagerly listening to the word of God and allowing it to, to change us. When we come to verse 19 of James chapter 1, we come to a shift to a new topic, uh, accepting the word of God. And so it's from suffering now to, to the word of God. And so follow with me as I read. I want to read verses 19 through the end of the chapter, James chapter 1. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. A religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James moves from the topic of suffering uh, and the importance of that and understanding that from, from a biblical uh, understanding of who God is, now to, to listening to the word of God. So if you came in this morning, you should have received 
a bulletin, you received a, a sheet of notes, and I've outlined this, this passage, and we're going to look at just 19, 20, and 21 this morning, and three things we need to be eager about. We need to e- be eager to listen to the word, we need to be eager to repent because of the word, and we need to be eager to receive all of the word. And I've been eager to preach this morning, eager to share this word with you. And I've been praying that you would be eager to hear, to listen to what God's word says. So I want to pray and ask God to teach this morning. So I will pray for you. I'd ask if you would pray for me and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to gather together as the body of Christ and to worship you. And we've worshiped you in in singing and in giving and in reading of your word. And now, God, we we transition to to the worship time of listening to the preaching of your word. And God, I pray for your people seated here this morning that you would give them eyes to see in their Bibles, ears to hear, hearts to be receptive to you. God, we recognize and we repeat yet again that you are the teacher. You are the guide. And I pray that you would be the one working in the hearts and minds of your people that are seated here this morning that you would change, that you would help us leave this morning different than we came in. And we'll be sure to give you all the honor and glory for what you do in this place. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So first, we need to be eager to listen to the word. James begins by describing a problem, and the problem is we struggle to listen. And here's what he writes, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, Slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I'm trying really hard to memorize these verses, by the way. I challenge you to do the same. We like to talk. And this is a problem to listen then. Plain and simple. We struggle with listening because we like to talk. We don't naturally listen. We need a biblical audiology. That's a word, actually. Biblical audiology, a theology of listening. Listening is a dominant theme in the Bible. Almost every book of the Bible has some reference to listening and obeying the word of God. From Genesis to Revelation, through the the poets and the prophets in the Old Testament, through Christ and the apostles in the New Testament, God calls for us to hear and to heed him. And over a period of 1,500 years, God chose approximately 40 men through whom he spoke. And Hebrews begins by saying, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And under the supervision of, of God and the Holy Spirit, men like Job and Moses and Joshua and Samuel and Ezra and Nehemiah and David and Jeremiah and Daniel and Matthew, Mark and Luke and John and Peter and Paul, they all wrote down what God said. And that's what we have in front of us. And Peter said to us, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For prophecy was ever produced, excuse me, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1. There's still a major section in Christians today, liberal Christians who who would still question the authority of the Bible. That doesn't speak or with any authority to their lives. And postmodern Christians would question the clarity of Scripture. Does does the Bible really say that? And non-Christians would would question the necessity of Scripture. 
Do we, do we really even need the Bible for life? But I dare say that today, evangelical Christians today, Bible Christians, non-denominational churches like ours begin to question the sufficiency of Scripture. Is it enough? Yes, the Bible is given to us by God through, through the human agents that I listed earlier. And yes, the Bible is true and it, and it has authority and it's, and it's without any errors. But when the rubber meets the road, there are many that do not believe that the Bible is sufficient. And why do I say this? Because books like Jesus Calling by Sarah Young fly off the shelves. You have the Bible, you have the very words of God and yet we're not listening to the word. We want something more. We don't want to listen to the word. We say things, I need a word from the Lord. But friends, what am I holding here? What are you holding? The very word of God. And God speaks in his word. So to not read your Bible is not to listen to God. Some say, I don't, I don't hear God speaking today. I want to hear God speaking in an audible voice. Friends, read your Bible out loud. <laughs> to not read your Bible is to not listen to God. And James instructs us this morning to listen to what God says. And listening is vital to the Christian life. This Bible is sufficient for your life. And we need to listen to it. And James begins to, to preach to us this morning that we need to be eager to listen to the word of God. And all that's just my introduction. He says in verse 19, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Know this. James is literally saying, pay attention to what I'm going to say next. And today I would say, friends, put away those things that would distract you from hearing God's word. I'm, I'm happy, I'm thrilled that in this day and age, we can carry the entire Bible in our pocket on our phones. I'm glad for that. Aren't you in different opportunities to always have the word of God with me? But if that's a distraction for you, friends, even this morning, put it away and get a paper Bible. Don't be distracted by that. Even though it's good, don't be distracted by it. And James says to us, pay attention you know, this is the, the flight attendant at the beginning of, the, of the, the flight telling you all the things you need to do in case of problems. Pay attention, instructing us what to do next, how to live. This is what James is saying. Know this, pay attention. And he says, my beloved brothers, these are fellow Christians, brothers and sisters in the Lord. And he's going to be direct with them, not general. He says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And he's writing to us individually. He's writing also corporately. But friends, make note, this is for all. This is for you this morning. Let every person, all of you seated here this morning, listen. And then he gives three imperatives, three commands. You see those there in verse 19? These are vital and important for us in the Christian life. They're crucial. He says, first, be quick to hear. What did you say, James? Be quick to hear. Literally, he, it means hurry up and listen. It's a rapid pursuit to listen to God's word. A swiftness to hear. To hear means to pay attention, to sit quietly, to be attentive. 
And listening was vital for James, the original audience, because this is the very first book of the New Testament. These, these scattered Jewish believers had portions of the Old Testament, but it was crucial, crucial for them to listen. All communication of the gospel was oral at this time. And we learn, friends, we learn when we listen. All learning is done by listening to someone. And we learn by listening and not speaking. It hit me this week as I was preparing that I spend 20 to 25 hours every week listening and studying God's word so that I can get up and speak for 40 to 45 minutes. I have to listen. I have to listen to what God's word says. Some words, sometimes upwards of 50 times I read a passage out loud so I can listen to what the passage is saying, so that I can hear God's word. I sometimes even in the technology have a Bible app that can read it for me so I can have someone else read it. I can listen to what it's saying. And I have to push myself to listen well. Listening doesn't come natural. It doesn't come natural to me. It doesn't come natural to you. Now, the Hebrews knew this well. He wrote to the, the Hebrews in chapter 5, verse 11. He says, about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. Again, the basic principles of the oracles of God, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. There's a tendency in all of us to become dull of hearing. It means there's no push to their ears, no, no energy of listening. He's saying they're already half asleep. Good listeners are better than good speakers, just so you know. Being quiet, though, isn't the same as listening, either. Some are quiet people, but horrible listeners. And this is what James is instructing us. He's charging you to be prepared to listen to God's word. Whether that is at home, when you're reading the Bible, or when you come to worship with the body here, we need the discipline of listening. Listening is an art, and it can be difficult to master. And this applies frankly, to every relationship that we have. Listening is taking intense interest in the person who is speaking. Listening is an art of closing your mouth and opening your ears. It is truly loving your neighbor as yourself. And so many marriages would benefit and grow if we worked on listening better. So many relationships with our kids or parents would grow. Our relationships with coworkers and neighbors and friends would grow if we learned to listen better. We would have less issues in our life if we did a better job of listening. But James isn't done yet. That's just the first command. The second command is to be slow to speak. Now, this is the hard one. We are usually quick to speak and slow to listen. To be slow is to be hesitant, to be delayed in speech. You perhaps have heard this before, but I asked one of my kids this week at dinner time, which was, by the way, that, that night, very loud and chaotic with four girls, distracting. And I'm trying to convey something and just talking everywhere. And I asked one of our kids, I won't tell you who, I said, how many ears do you have? And they answered two. And I said, great. How many mouths do you have? They said one. And I said, great. So you should listen twice as much as you speak. 
Good math, right? We all need this reminder this morning. That's what James is reminding us of this morning when we come to the word of God. Proverbs 17, 27 through 28 says, whoever restrains his words has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Did you hear from your parents growing up this phrase that my wife and I did on a regular basis? Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. I believe Abraham Lincoln said that. Unfortunately, the less people know, the more they talk. And when we come to the Bible, friends, we should come silent. Come prepared to learn. You shouldn't come to the Bible as a know-it-all. You come quick to hear, slow to speak. A person who keeps on talking is a poor listener, and a poor listener is subject to failure in keeping their anger in check. And that leads to the third command that James gives us, slow to anger. The word anger here needs some attention so that we understand what James is saying. Anger is from the Greek word orge which is infuriated disposition, a wrathful anger. Then James continues in verse 20, he says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, what is the connection here? This is connected with listening to the word of God. When we allow anger to guide us, we're no longer guided by the word of God. The righteousness of God doesn't spring out of the wrath of man. Human anger produces an ugly, unrighteous life. It never produces godly righteousness. And James is singularly focused here with anger of man. He's talking to you. The righteousness of God won't be shown in the unrighteous anger that you have, that I have. God's righteousness won't be accomplished. James says it cannot be achieved through our anger. An angry Prideful Christian does not reflect God's righteousness. Our our wrath doesn't promote the course of righteousness. Wrathful men do not practice the right conduct that is approved by God. Even though the sin that we are angry over sometimes is huge and even life-changing, God doesn't give us a pass over that. And I found myself this week just pouring over this and texting one of the elders and talking about these verses trying to to wrap my mind around this. And I found myself even meeting with some folks, some people from our church, and they're relaying to me some troubling information. And I started to feel anger in my heart over the sin that was being shared to me. And anger wasn't directed at a certain person because I didn't know the person. I I had no face to put on this person, but it was someone I'd never met, but there was anger brewing inside of me, anger over sin. And I felt at first, maybe this is, God, this is righteous anger, right? You know, Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Maybe it's righteous anger, but you know what happened? This anger wasn't something that I could turn into godly righteousness because as I stewed on the sin, it troubled me. I found my heart not being able to hear God's word when I needed it most. I couldn't recall what God said in the Bible. I was just angry at the sin. 
And I could think that it was righteous anger, but in my heart, I wanted to race to my justice. In the situation, I wasn't seeking God's justice. I wanted to execute what Jeff thought was best and not be patient for what God knows is best. And then you know what happened? As I'm working through this, I got another text message from someone in the church and there, the sin that has been done to them was shared in serious ways. And I recognize, God, you're teaching me something in this. Friends, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Even though I could clearly identify the actions that were being shared with me as sin, I couldn't produce God's righteous behavior towards it because of my anger. And my wrath is not the same as God's wrath towards sin. Now, righteous anger isn't prohibited here. We can be angry at sin, but friends, I want to warn you, you need to be careful. He says we need to be slow and cautious because our anger at sin can so easily and so quickly be shifted to those people that sin. And we need to be careful not to allow anger to settle into our hearts that we then nurse and feed and that will eventually control us. Friends, this is not righteous anger. Anger does not allow you to listen better to God's word. Have you ever tried to get someone's attention when they're really, really angry? They're full-blown in anger. They're upset. They're focused. They're determined in their anger. And they're not listening. And this is why James commands us to be slow to anger. And we might think that the opposite of anger is self-control. But it isn't. The opposite of anger is humility. Anger connects to our ability to receive God's word. So listen, friends. Anger and humility don't mix. You cannot be angry and humble at the same time. And so we need to take heed of what James is saying here. James is is speaking to us this morning. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And when we come to sit, hopefully daily before God's word, to sit under his word, to read his word, to study his word. We need to come as ready listeners, silent, ready to receive what God has for us. So that's the first thing we need to be eager for. Second, we need to be eager to repent because of the word. It says in verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. We need to be eager to repent because of the word. It's, it's a beautiful thing when Christians humbly confess their sin to one another and run to the gospel. And maybe it's after a gospel-centered sermon or a Christ-anchored Bible study or perhaps after some meaningful prayer. It could also be through the, the thoughtful and caring friend that shows us our sin or a spouse that, that identifies a sin in our lives. And in these moments, God is doing his work in our hearts, bringing conviction of sin and 
and contrition and it quickly follows and we're in agreement with God about our sin. And all of this is known as confession. I had someone come up to me a number of months ago and asked an honest question, the difference between confession and repentance. And I believe they're not the same. In our desperation to be done with the shame of sin, we confess. But then we sometimes foolishly exhale and believe that the work is done. We, we don't want to talk about our sin any longer. We don't want to be bothered by it. But we fail to realize that confession is just the beginning. And when we neglect repentance, we need to agree of the truth of our sin, our confession, and then choose a gospel-motivated response. James will talk about that, putting our faith in action. Confession only begins the process of repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Repentance requires that we don't drag our feet trying to, to shift the blame, making excuses even covered with Bible verses, all because someone expects us to. Instead, repentance requires more, a full and complete surrender to, to the Bible and to the truth of God's word. Even sometimes submitting ourselves to other Christians for help and encouragement and accountability. And when we're repentant, we see the necessity of rebuilding trust with others that we've sinned against, even if it takes longer than we planned. Friends, this is repentance. And this is what James is calling us to so that we can receive God's word. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. He instructs us to put away or put off or take off. This, this word has the idea of taking off filthy clothes, to, to take off that behavior, this filthiness, this wickedness in our heart that is coming out in our life, to put it away. And it's a command for us, a strong admonishment. And it reminds me of a mudroom in a house. Anyone have a mudroom in your house? Two people. Just seeing if you're listening. When Katie and I were looking for a house, we desperately wanted an area to take our shoes off that wasn't inside the house. If you ever come to our house, you'll find that we take our shoes off. This is a result of living in Sweden. In Sweden, they, take, they make kids take their shoes off every time they go into school. Yes, that's true. It's glorious, by the way. Why do they do that? Well, it's like snowing nine months of the year. So they want to keep snow outside. And so it became ingrained in us. Every time we went to someone's house, you take your shoes off. It's, it's just part of how life is for us. And I think of this mudroom. This is the mudroom for the Christian here. James says, take it off. This, this filthy, filthiness and rampant wickedness. And if we're so worried about our homes becoming dirty, how much more should we be concerned about the filth of sin in the household of God? But what should we take off? James says filthiness. It refers to any sort of moral defilement or impurity. It's a theme that we've seen multiple times in New Testament passages. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on new self, created after the likeness of God, and true righteousness and holiness. In Colossians 3, 8 and 9, but now you must put them all away, anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices 
In Hebrews 12, 1, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But even more interesting is the word filth here is also used as a medical term used at this time for earwax. Which, if allowed to build up, does what? Hard of hearing. It causes dull hearing. You see the connection, you know, James is saying? I mean, this fits right in. To hear the word, we have to be disciplined, to be rid of sins that God has revealed in our hearts. Otherwise, we won't hear the word. To put them away. If the word to you, friends, is not active, it's not alive to you right now, perhaps it's because you have a wax buildup. That's causing you not to be able to hear God's word well. Perhaps you need a spiritual house cleaning. Friends, is this you? Do you you get excited to read God's word? Is the word sweet to your soul? You find it to show more and more riches every day. Perhaps you need to spend time meditating on Psalm 139. Verses 23 and 24, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. Maybe you need to memorize that and recite it to yourself every time you open up God's word. If there's sin, God would make it known to you. You'd be quickly to to turn from it and turn to him. You should have these practical exercises before we sit down to read God's word or sit under God's word. And practically, friends, this should be done every time we, we, we open the Bible. And, and I understand this might come across old school or fuddy-duddy, but I don't really care. I'm going to say it anyways. You need to think about Sunday morning worship before Sunday morning. I don't know if that's a practice for you or not. And I'll give you some practical things you need to think about. You probably need to make it a practice to be home every Saturday night. I don't know if you noticed that we seldomly plan any church events on Saturday night. Why? Because there are enough distractions in our life to, to pull us away from preparing ourselves to sit under the preaching of God's word. And we need to take Saturday evening to prepare our hearts for Sunday morning worship. And we've set aside in our culture today, right now, primarily Sunday as the day of worship. And so we need to recognize, friends, you need to recognize that the day your church meets is the most important day of the week. It really is. Pastor Garrett Kell, I've shared this before, I'll read it again, has helped me. He says Sunday worship starts Saturday night. He lists five things we should do on Saturday night. It'd be good if you write these down. First, read tomorrow's sermon text. Friends, this prepares our heart for what will be preached. I didn't want to ask this, but I'm going to. How many of you read James 1, 19 through 21 last night? We give it to you every quarter. We list it out. We take great strides to have a preaching schedule for you to have. This is why. There's a method to this madness. This is why. I want you to be in the word 
before you sit under the word. The second thing you can do is pray for your pastor's preaching, whoever's preaching. And friends, I, I can't echo this enough. We so desperately need your prayers to preach God's word faithfully. To spend just a few moments on Saturday evening praying for the one that's preaching the next day. Pastor Ryan is preaching next Sunday. Pray for him. Number three, pray for the church to humbly receive God's word. Praying for people specifically that you know that you have a relationship with, part of this church, that maybe have had struggles this week. And pray for them as they sit under God's word to be receptive to what the word is. Pray for your brothers and sisters to be eager to put off sin and put on God's righteousness. The fourth thing, pray for unbelievers to come and to believe. Are we praying for others to join us? We have more seats. We can get more. Are we praying for that? When was the last time you invited someone to come along to church with you? You, you know, because you're here, but we have services outside of Christmas and Easter. Your unsaved friends can come those other Sundays. They really can. We'd love to have them. We need to be praying that way. We need to ask and invite them. Come, come, come to church and I'll take you to lunch. Not that you bombard them then, just open up the opportunity and pray for others to come. Number five, get to bed early so you can show up early and to bless others. What time does service start? putting you a test, right? What time does service start? Sunday school is at 9.15. Worship is at 10.15. Coming early. Is this brand new to you guys? I don't know. Does anyone love to be early to places? I do. I hate being late. It's a pride issue. Come early. Go to bed early. And I'm serious. Don't stay up on Saturday night watching a movie that's not going to help you prepare to sit under God's word. Don't stay up to watch the Huskies. They're probably going to win, okay? You can check the score the next day. It's not worth it. Get the sleep your body needs so that you can come and you can be alert and, and be involved with the church family to worship. And if you're struggling sitting here, and I recognize this is normal for a number of people that work jobs or you're moving all the time, all week, and, and this is the first time maybe you've sat down for an hour straight and it's hard to listen and pay attention. If you need to stand up, you're not offending me. Feel free to do that. I pray for you, okay, in that regard because I just sit in the office. I don't feel like I do real work in that way. Or some of you work 50, 60 hours in lifting things and you're tired. I understand that. That doesn't offend me and it shouldn't offend anyone here. We need to work at that though so that we can listen well. And friends, also recognize that Sunday morning is an event. It's not an event that you just check off the list. And if you're new here this morning, we're glad you're here, but Sundays is not just an event that we attend. Sunday morning is an opportunity to worship together as a body of Christ. And I'll add a sixth one onto his list. To prepare, friends, we need to spend time confessing sins pulling out weeds and preparing the soil for the implanted word of God that we'll get to here in a moment. Charles Spurgeon said, the stool of repentance 
and the foot of the cross are the favorite positions of instructed Christians. So friends, may we be eager to repent because of the word. This leads to my last point this morning. We need to be eager to receive all of the word. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. We need to be eager to receive the word. How do we do this? First, he says we receive it. This, it means to have an urgency. It also means to give it a warm welcome. We know this, don't we? We've experienced this maybe. How do you feel when you come to a friend's home or even a stranger and there's a warm welcome at the door? Right? It's enjoyable. There's a desire for you to be there. Have you been on the other side of it where you show up and they're like, oh, you're here. That's not really enjoyable. You kind of feel like, oh, I'm going to go to Chick-fil-A. You want that warm welcome. And he's saying that. Warmly welcome the word of God into your life. That's the first. Second, we, we welcome the word into our lives with meekness, he says. This, this means to show humility. This is the opposite of anger that we see in verses 19 and 20. You, you won't learn from the word if you approach it with anger, with pride. And, and we would do well to ask ourselves, do I have a gentle and open and teachable spirit? Do I welcome God's truths into my life, into my heart? And simply agreeing with truth isn't the same as obeying truth. So are you teachable? And I'm serious here, friends. Are you able to be taught the word of God? You see the connection here, verse 19 through 21? You, you cannot be out in the world every day of the week telling people off, controlling everyone, never listening to someone, never pausing to understand people, never pausing to ask kind and gentle questions and, and then come with a learning spirit and think that you'll come and sit under God's word and be anything different. If that's how your life is outside in the world, you're going to come that same way into God's word. James says later in chapter 4, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you want grace? It only comes when we humble ourselves. And friends, we need to be teachable when we come to the Bible. If your only response when a sermon is preached or a Bible study is led or when you sit down and read is to go and argue, then you have work to do, friends. We're to come with meekness, with a humble spirit when we sit under the word of God. It doesn't mean we don't ask questions. It means we come with a teachable spirit. We receive, we warmly welcome with, with humility. And third, what are we to welcome? It's the implanted word. Now, now what is James saying here? Implanted means engrafted or it's planted in us. This word was planted already in us at the moment of salvation, but this connects back to the receiving. It is the gospel. And so he says, he's saying receiving it, believe the gospel again. It, it, it consistently needs to be listened to, received, and believed again. Why? Because we can so easily and so quickly be distracted by the Troubles in this life to forget the gospel. And friends, I hope I repeat this till the day I die. We need to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. Because we can be so easily deceived into not believing it. This is why James says at the end of the verse that the implanted word which is able to save your souls. 
He isn't talking about salvation in the eternal sense. This isn't conversion that he's talking about. This is how the the word saves us from coming to make sinful decisions. It it saves us to an obedient life. There's three aspects of salvation here. The past aspect is is a salvation that God used his word. We saw it in verse 18, the truth of the gospel to bring us to birth. And then the present aspect is the word that aids in our sanctification. It is a, a constant resource that builds up the believer to give us freedom from sins that bring dominion in our lives, that we become more like Jesus Christ. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And we learn God's word and we hide it in our heart so that we won't sin. And finally, the word has power to keep us for a future salvation. Our glorification when we are in Christ's presence forever free from the presence of sin. I can't wait for that day. I look forward to that day. You see the gospel here in this? Just this one verse, it packs a huge punch. It shows the abundance of evil that's within us. And it tells us of the importance of humbling ourselves and recognizing our need for help. And it shows a decisive response to the gospel and also the recognition of the power of the gospel to not only eternally save us, but to continually rescue us from ourselves. And God graciously gives us new birth through his word. And now he desires to implant more of it in our hearts so that our Christian experience matches the new birth that we've already received. So we should be eager for the word to do its work in our lives. And friends, I I recognize perhaps you're here this morning and the spirit is doing his work in your heart. And then I recognize there's some here this morning that you're not counted among those who hold Christ dearly, who are a Christian. And perhaps today is the day that the Spirit is drawing you to himself. To turn from a life centered on you and to turn to God. And I implore you, to trust in Christ. To turn from yourself and to turn to him. Accept what the word says and believe. And friends, this is why we're here. This is why I'm here. I'd love to speak with you. And, and no, no shame whether you've been in this church for one day or 10 years. If you're not trusting in Christ, you're trusting yourself, friends, you need to turn And trust in him alone. And I'd love to talk with you. I know other pastors and elders will be at the door at the end of the service to talk with you. They would love to walk you through what the word says. Well, let's close out here. I read a fascinating story this week. Let me start by asking a question. Do you ever feel like no one understands you? Do you ever feel like no one understands you? A week maybe just moves so slowly, day in and day out, and we come to the end and we still feel like we're all alone. No one understands what we're experiencing. No one understands the stress we feel. And maybe you say, no one understands me. And I bet if you're honest, we've all had those thoughts at one point in our lives. One man, Emil Catlett, 
was a lot like that for good reason. He grew up in a small village in France. In his college days, Emil was an agnostic who had never picked up a Bible for himself. And then he served in the army in World War I. He says, the insufficiency of my views and the human situation overwhelmed me. What, what use is the theoretical banter of, this, of the seminar when your own buddy at the time of speaking to you of his mother dies standing in front of you from a bullet to the chest? One night in the war, a bullet also got Emil. An American field ambulance crew saved his life and later the use of a badly shattered arm was restored. Emil returned to his books but they were no longer the same books. Reading in literature and philosophy, he found himself probing their depths for new meaning. He needed more. He says, during long night watches in the foxholes, I had in a strange way of been, been longing, I, I must say, however strange it may sound, for a book that would understand me, he wrote. And since he knew of no such book, he decided to prepare his own for his own private use. Emile read widely and he went on reading, he would file away passages that, that spoke to his condition. Then he carefully copied them into a leather-bound pocketbook that he would carry with him wherever he went. And he, he would hope that this someday would, would help him and relieve all of the fear and anguish. And the day came when Emil put the finishing touches down the book that he says would understand me, the words and the sentences that would speak to his condition and help him through life's happenings. A beautiful sunny day, Emil went out and sat under a tree and opened up his book and went on reading. However, a growing disappointment came over him. Instead of speaking to his condition, the various passages reminded him of their context and the circumstances and the things that were on his heart when he wrote it weren't on his heart right now. In his own words, then I knew that the whole undertaking would not work simply because it was my own thinking. It carried no strength of persuasion. He realized that this book he created couldn't change him. It couldn't change his view of the circumstances that he now faced. And at that moment, Emile's wife, who knew nothing of the project on which he had been working, appeared at the gate of the garden, pushing a baby carriage. And she had with her a Bible in French from a pastor she had just met on the morning walk. And as she stood in front of him, Emile literally grabbed the book and rushed into his study with it. And he opened the Bible and chanced upon the Beatitudes. And he read and read and read, first in quiet and then aloud, with an indescribable warmth surging inside, he says. This is his words. He says, I could not find words to express my awe and wonder. And suddenly the realization dawned upon me, this, this was the book that would understand me. I continued to read deeply into the night, mostly from the Gospels. And lo and behold, as I looked through them, the one of whom they spoke, the one who spoke and acted in them became alive to me. And the providential circumstances amid which the book had found me now made it clear that while it seemed absurd to speak of a book understanding a man, this could be said of the Bible because its pages were animated by the presence of a living God and the power of his mighty acts. And to this God, I prayed that night, and the God who answered was the same God of whom it was spoken in the book. And some of you here this morning have looked everywhere you could find for something that can understand you. Some of you have looked for that in a relationship, in marriage. And you're wrong. They will fail you. 
they cannot know you completely and fulfill all of your desires. They can't do it. We can't put that pressure on them. And there are others seated here that are pursuing schooling or a career field, thinking that through this endeavor, you will finally understand yourself. You will finally get the deep understanding of yourself that you've been looking for. And friends, you'll be disappointed. You won't find the fulfillment that you're looking for. Another new job, a new career won't bring you what you're looking for. It will fail you. Friends, you will only understand yourself when you read the Bible. And some of you are looking at the Bible like a textbook, or even worse, just a daily chore. But the Word is living and breathing. It's something that is real and eternal. It isn't just a poultry book to read one day and to move on. It lingers with us, and it changes us. It can be the same passage or the same book of the Bible that it does the work in our lives, and it does the work in our lives not just for a day, but for decades. Friends, this truly is the book that understands you. And my prayer for you all week is that we will walk away from this time together with a profound love and adoration for God's word and for God. That we will love to read his word. And that we will eagerly submit our lives before his word and before him. And that we will joyfully and eagerly come to sit under the preaching of God's word and gladly go out and live in obedience to what we have learned. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for your word that has worked mightily in my heart this week. And I pray for your people that are seated here that you would take your word and that you would teach them. God, if there's anything I said that doesn't line up with your word, I pray that you would allow that to be forgotten and to fall away. That they would land solely upon what your truth says. That you would use that in their lives that we would be eager, eager Christians to be in your word. And then when we, we feel and we sense days where we struggle to get in, that we would spend time in prayer. We would spend time reciting Psalm 139, asking you to show us if there's anything that we need to confess, that we need to return from, repent of. You would help us to receive your word, to believe your word, and to live your word. Help us, Father, as we leave. Help us to take your word and to root it deeply into our hearts. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.